Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 in your Bible. We're going to go through Matthew 1 through 4 in the next few months here. Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapters 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in the chair under the seat in front of you, and you could turn there to page 855. Page 855. If you want to follow along and take notes, there is a, inside right after the, the next song, there's a little handout there with three points. Though I do confess you're only going to use these three points at the very end, at the very end of the sermon, maybe the second half of the sermon. So that's just a little word of warning there. All right. I hope you're in Matthew. I'm going to begin verse 1, and we're going to go to verse 17. This is often the parts of the Bible you skip over or you read really fast when you're doing your Bible reading for the year, and you have a long list of of genealogy, but um, we're going to spend uh, the next 45 minutes to an hour here meditating on this. So, Hear then the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Ammon. Ammon fathered Josiah. Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Atzor. Atzor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus who is called the Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you that you speak, and now we are anticipating a partial fulfillment of what we read from Philippians 4.19, that you will supply all of our needs. Lord, we need this text. We need your word. We need your nourishment. We need your spirit's help. We need you to soften our hearts and to open our eyes, and we need you to plant seeds that are going to bear immediate fruit in our lives and some seeds of thought from this passage that will help bear fruit for the rest of our decades of understanding the Bible. So, Father, we're praying for both. We're praying for immediate seeds that bear fruit, 
seeds that bear immediate fruit, and then we're praying for seeds that will help shape the way we think about the Old Testament so that it bears fruit in us worshiping Jesus for the rest of our lives. Father, this can only come by you, and so we pray through natural and even especially through supernatural means that you would build up the saints. We pray for anyone here who's not a Christian, that you would show them the beauty and majesty of our King, Jesus Christ. And in seeing that beauty, we pray that they would turn from their sins and gladly entrust themselves to your Son. We pray for all of these things, and even for the children's class, that you would work there as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? More books have been, have been written about him than anyone else. More songs have been sung to him and about him. More people worship and honor him as God than anyone else. Uh, there are two billion confessing Christians. If you count Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant Christianity, two billion people on the earth today confess that Jesus is God. Jesus is so big, he's bigger than the Beatles. Now, some of you, that doesn't mean much, but that was a famous quote from, well, the opposite of a famous quote where John Lennon said that he and the Beatles were bigger than Jesus, but, uh, but um, that's clearly not the case anymore, as some of you don't recognize the quote even. Um, whether you're a Christian or not, we divide the whole, the, the counting of human history based on Jesus Christ. So the year, this year is 2018 AD, or some people might say 2000 AD, what does AD stand for? Anno Domini, Domini, I don't know how to pronounce Latin here, but it's the year of our Lord. 2018 in the year of our Lord, because someone a few hundred years after the fact tried to calculate back to the year of Jesus' birth. He was off by about four years. So Jesus was actually born five years BC, five BC, BC four before Christ. Um, so Christ was born five years before Christ, just in terms of the counting. So it's really 2022 or something like that. Anyways, the point is that even everyone around the world says it's 2018, and they're basing that on the estimated year of Jesus's birth. Um, so, so it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. If you're saying it's 2018, you're affected by Jesus Christ. You're affected by him. And even if you change it to, instead of AD, do you know the new abbreviation? They don't use AD anymore. What do they use in schools? CE. CE for common era. So it's 2018 CE. And you could use the years from BCE, before common era. Even if you take out Christ and year of our Lord, you're still counting from the estimated year of the Lord. So it's still 2018 CE, and so you're still counting from, from Christ. But the point here is that um, Jesus is a significant figure in human history. If you do a Google search, if you search Jesus and you hit enter in your Google search bar, I did this this week, in 0.6 seconds you will get 289,000 results to figure out who Jesus is. So if you want to figure out who Jesus is, I don't recommend you go to Google. Uh, let me just tell you what some people say about who Jesus is. Some say Jesus never really existed. He's just a myth. He's not real. Others say that Jesus was a good person who never sought to start a religion. He was just sort of influential and his followers picked it up. Some still might say that Jesus is a good person. He's a good person to talk to. He's a good resource when life gets hard. Still others might say Jesus is a nice person. 
who never did anything to hurt anyone's feelings, ever. Some, more of the religious opinion, some say that Jesus is the same person in all religions. If you study other religions, you'll realize quickly that they claim different things about Jesus, and that's not possible. Um, Some say that Jesus is a prophet who spoke for God, only a prophet who spoke for God. Others say that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer, right? The Mormons. Others, like Gandhi, might say that Jesus is as much God as other great religious men in the world. So some might say Jesus is a good teacher. And then the, the ones on the more critical side will say that Jesus was either a false prophet, he was a lunatic because he let people worship him, or he was a liar, that he really knew he was tricking people. And those are other opinions about Jesus. So who do you think Jesus is? Who is Jesus. You know, as a Christian and as a member of this church, it's not good enough for you to say, well, my pastor says Jesus is fill in the blank. Or, well, my church says or my denomination says this is who Jesus is, so this is who Jesus is. As a Christian, your final answer must be from where? From the scripture, right? From the Bible. We want to know what does the Bible say about Jesus, about who he is. Who was Jesus according to the Bible and those who lived with him? The short answer is this. Let me give you who Jesus is, at least according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus is, he was someone who was born of Mary, and his adopted father was Joseph. He was from the family line of Judah, of the 12 tribes of Israel. He had brothers and sisters. His dad was a carpenter, so most likely... Jesus himself was a carpenter who swung a hammer and built things for his community. Later, he left the carpentry business and became a rogue rabbi. Didn't go through the normal training schools of the rabbis of his day, but he became a rabbi, a teacher. He was a miracle worker. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He um, raised the dead on at least three occasions, they say. Eventually, he was... He started getting a following, large crowds started following him. Eventually, he picked 12 special followers to be his key disciples. Later on in his ministry, um, towards the end, he started, he started accruing enemies who wanted to kill him. Eventually, he was framed by these enemies and sentenced to death. He was executed by Roman crucifixion on a cross on a Friday. And his followers allegedly claim that he rose from the dead on the third day, which is on a Sunday, Friday being day one, Saturday being day two, Sunday being day three, that he rose from the dead on the third day, and that he ascended, he literally, this is what they say, that he flew up to heaven. So imagine someone like Lance, just a a normal human, you see him here, and he starts flying up to heaven. That's what they claim, that he ascended and flew back to heaven. That's the story of who Jesus is. Now, if we stop there, if I just said, okay, that's who Jesus is, and, and that was my full answer, I just gave you his birth all the way to his ascension, and you still wouldn't get a good idea of who Jesus is from what I just said. You wouldn't get a good sense of who he is. You got a few facts about him, but you need to know who Jesus is, whether you're a Christian or not, because for everyone sitting here, everyone in this world, Jesus is the, 
I mean, he's the most important human who ever lived, according to Christians. And not only that, he is the one who defines your life, Amen. whether you're a Christian or not. Literally, according to the Bible, your whole destiny is depending on what you do with Jesus, whether you're a Christian or not. So even if you're like, well, I don't believe in Jesus, PJ, this is not for me. Even if you think this is not for you, who Jesus is to you is the most important thing about you. So it's not just for Christians to figure out who Jesus is. It's important even for non-Christians to figure out who Jesus is because your life, indeed your eternal destiny, your everyday decisions literally are dictated by who you think and who you believe Jesus is. Amen. So, who is Jesus? Well, we're in the book of Matthew. And we'll, be in the, we'll be in this book for the, the next several weeks. And um, at least according to Matthew chapter 1, looking at your Bible, look at verse 1. It says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham is talked about where in the Bible? The New Testament or the Old Testament, primarily? Old, Old Testament. David, is he primarily in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Old, Old Testament. So, what is Matthew telling us right from the beginning of his, his, um, his book? He is telling us, if you're going to understand who Jesus is, you need to understand the Old Testament. Amen. You need to know the story before you even get to Jesus. It's like, to not know the Old Testament is like you waking up today and forgetting, complete, forgetting your history completely. Amen. What if you forgot where you were born, who your parents were, where you were, what year it was, you woke up like that and you forgot all of your history. You could say, well, it doesn't matter as long as I live today. And from this point on, all that matters is, is today going forward. Well, if you don't have a sense of your personal history, you don't have a sense of who you are, right? It's bound up. Yeah. At least your self-understanding is bound up with who you understand yourself to be. And if you lose that, you lose a large sense of who you are. And so if you're going to understand who Jesus is, and you're like, well, the Old Testament doesn't matter. I just want to read the New Testament and just get the story of Jesus. You're literally gutting the history and a, a, a full-orbed understanding of who Jesus is. Amen. History shapes you whether, you whether you know it or not. So you might as well learn it. And the same thing for Jesus. History shapes who you understand Jesus to be, who Jesus is, whether you know it or not. So you might as well understand it. Okay, so with that, verse 17 is going to give us... So I'm going to do two things here for the rest of the sermon. I'm going to give you a summary of the Old Testament, because I think that's what Matthew does here. He literally, in, from verses 2 through 16, so it is in 15 verses, Matthew summarizes the Old Testament. Wow, that's pretty good. He summarizes the Old Testament in 15 verses. Matthew does it here. And, and so I want to give a summary of the Old Testament. We'll do that for the next 20 minutes or so, or less. And then after that, we'll, we'll, then we'll get to your notes with three applications. Okay? Three applications of, of, of this passage and understanding what it means for us today. All right. So our structure for this Old Testament story is given to us in verse 17. Matthew summarizes, this is not the only way to summarize the Old Testament, but it's, it is a very, it's a biblical and an effective way of, of summarizing the Old Testament. <clears throat> so look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to, to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. So we have how many episodes here? How many sets of 14 generations? Three, right? From Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from the exile until the Christ. 
So you have three episodes. So I'm going to summarize the story of the Old Testament. Matthew is summarizing it in three episodes. You know, you should know the story of the Bible and the Old Testament better than you know the story of Star Wars. There's a, there's a challenge for some of you. Or Lord of the Rings. Or pick your favorite movie. doesn't have to be one of those two movies. Think of those big epic stories that are multiple movies long. You know, and, and just ask yourself, do I know the story of the Bible and the nuances of the story of the Bible better than I know the story of these comic books? Or these other stories of, of my favorite stories of literature? Nothing against stories from literature and from the movies. But it's a shame that Christians don't know the story of the Bible Better than the story, the three episodes of Star Wars. The first three, that is. And so we need to know our our Bibles better. And so I want to, I'm thinking, okay, as a pastor, how can I get my members of my church to know the story of the Bible as well as they know their favorite stories? I don't know if I'm going to succeed, but I'm going to try today to give you a summary of it, and hopefully you can get it. So I'm going to, there's three episodes here. Um, And so Abraham to David, David to the exile, exile to Christ, Okay. In this story, let me, let me name the three episodes for you. Episode one, which is from Abraham and David, is kingdom established. A new kingdom. Episode two, the enemy strikes back. Or the kingdom commissioned and declined. And declining. Okay? So the kingdom established, the kingdom declining, commissioned and declining. Or you could say the kingdom failing. So the kingdom established, the kingdom failing. And then lastly, the kingdom comes. Or the kingdom coming. And that's the return of the king. Or the coming of the king, namely Jesus. Okay? So there's the three episodes. The kingdom established, the kingdom declining and failing, and then the kingdom coming. Three episodes of the Old Testament. So let me tell you the first episode one. The kingdom established from Abraham to David. Here's the big question. Well, it's set up with a promise. So you have the whole Tower of Babel where um, God separates the, the people of humanity into different ethnic people groups. And then from there, he calls Abraham and he says in Genesis 12, Abraham, go from the land of your fathers to the land I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you three things. A land, offspring, or a great nation, and a universal blessing. Okay? The whole world is cursed because of sin, and I'm going to give you three things, um, Abraham. I'm going to give you a land. Okay, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to give you a land, just like they had a land, where I'm going to live there with you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation, an offspring. I'm going to give you offspring. And then I'm going to make, through you, a universal blessing to the universal cursed world. The whole world is cursed because of sin, and through you all the families of the earth will have blessing. It will be universal blessing. Okay? So, to me, the way I, when I say the kingdom establishes episode one, that's the kingdom promised. Okay, so what does the kingdom look like? It looks like a, a, a people, a great nation, in a great place, where God lives with them. And this nation becomes a means through which there's universal blessing to the whole world, so that the whole earth is covered with the glory of God. That's the kingdom. And so... Would the king, here's a big question. Would the kingdom be established? So that's a big promise that God made to one man and his wife who have no kids. That's a big promise. Would it actually happen, yes or no? Well, so Abraham is called out. He's promised a land, a people, and a, a universal blessing. And in that universal blessing, you have a kingship. So the kingdom is God's people, 
the nation, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. That's how Graham Goldsworthy would summarize it. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So would they do it? Would this kingdom be established? Well, Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of of Israel. That's right. And so Jacob has 12 sons, and this, these 12 tribes are going to become the great nation. Okay? So Jacob has 12 sons. Jacob is renamed Israel, and so his sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. They go down to Egypt because of a famine, and they stay in Egypt for 400 years. In those 400 years, eventually they become slaves in the land of Egypt. They become slaves in the land of Egypt, and so now God has to redeem them. So here's the problem. How can you have a kingdom established with a land, a people, and a blessing when your people are slaves in a foreign land under a hostile king? That's how, that hardly sounds like a kingdom being established, right? That's the opposite of a kingdom being established. And so here's the pattern of redemption. How are they going to get out of here? Um, if they're in slavery... How is God going to get them out? If there's Canaanites in the land, how are they going to get there to their land? And how are they going to have order in their kingdom? Well, there's four steps to God getting them, four steps to God establishing the kingdom. Okay? From slavery in Egypt to the kingdom finally established, there's four steps along the way. Okay? So let me tell you these four steps, and then we'll be done with episode one. So here you are, slaves in Egypt. Step one, God redeems them out of slavery. That's called the Exodus, right? What I've been teaching you to call the Exodus redemption. How does God do it? He sends 10 plagues. On that final 10th plague, there's a Passover lamb that is slaughtered. Blood is put over the door. God kills all the firstborn of Egypt, and he busts them out of slavery. Redemption, step one. Redeem them out of the land of of Egypt through the Red Sea, and then they get to this mountain called Mount Sinai. Here's step two. What does he do at Mount Sinai? He, he um, cuts a covenant. That's the, way, <clears throat> that's the way the Bible talks about it. But he makes a covenant relationship with them now as a nation. Now they become a nation. He says, I've redeemed you out of Egypt. He gives them how many commandments? The famous Ten Commandments, right? I redeemed you out of Egypt. If you keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession, my kingdom of priests, and my holy nation. So now you're my people... Keep the covenant. Keep the Ten Commandments because I already redeemed you. So, so keep the Ten Commandments. Set up the priesthood. Set up the tabernacle. Do the sacrifices and be my holy people. Eat only what I tell you to eat. Don't eat what I tell you not to eat. And in that, be the holy people that I want you to be. So there's a covenant relationship. That's step two. Okay? That's at Mount Sinai. <coughs> Excuse me. Then, Mount Sinai is not where they live, though. What do they need? Where do they need to live? In the land. So they get to the land, (coughs) excuse me, I got asthma. They get to the land, and in the land, um, who leads them into the land? Moses. Moses dies right before the land. Joshua leads them in the land, and then they start cleaning house in the land, and then you have the period of the judges, and so you have them in the land. So that's step three. Step three is they enter the land, and they conquer the land. So you have redemption from slavery, covenant relationship, now they're in the land. So now you've got a great nation with a covenant relationship in the land. Now what do they need? To be what? A, a land, a people, and a what? A blessing. Now they need to be a blessing to the world. Well, during the period of the judges, there's so much chaos there that it's hardly, they're hardly going to be a blessing. They need order. And so what does God give them finally? 
kind of in their rebellion, but it's still part of God's plan. He gives them a king. So that's the step four. He gives them a king, and then they get the greatest king, King David. Okay, so by the end of David's life, or by David's time, you go from slavery in Egypt to Pharaoh to King David, who never loses a battle, never loses a military battle. And your nation is completely dominating whenever it's in battle and war because God is on your side. You see how they went from a kingdom in slavery or promise, and then you have the redemption, covenant relationship, enter the land, and now a king, and now the kingdom is established. That's episode one. You guys got episode one down? Got it? Kingdom established from Egypt to David in Jerusalem. Okay? That's episode one. You should know the story. Now, what's episodes two? Episode two is from, at least from Matthew 1.17, David to the what? Matthew 1.17, David to the what? David to the exile. So this is what I'm calling the enemy strikes back. Well, it's just a play on words for, um, for Star Wars. But the kingdom declines or the kingdom fails. Okay, so now, you're the, now you have the kingdom. Now you're going to be a blessing to the nations, right? Right. And so who's David's son? Solomon. And Solomon is the most powerful, the richest, and he has the most pervasive conquering of or uh, pervasive um, area of land under his kingship not only that he builds the very famous what temple Temple. and god's glory comes down from heaven and fills the temple and so now you have god living in jerusalem you have god living in jerusalem with god's people and you got people from all of the nations coming to hear solomon's wisdom what are they supposed to be to the nations what's the it's a people a, a, a land and a what a universal blessing to all the nations. So now you got nations and kings, you got different people streaming in to hear the wisdom of Solomon. There it is. God did it, right? End of the story, end of the Bible, right? It's all good now. The promise is fulfilled. Sort of, but not really. Because even in Solomon's reign, he marries 700 women. So he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. So 700 wives, 300 concubines, and in that, in that, whereas God defines marriage in Genesis 2 as one man and one woman becoming one flesh, right? That's hardly one woman. Um, that's a thousand. So um, you missed it by three zeros there, Solomon. So, so, so Solomon marries, okay? And in this, in this, Solomon's heart is torn away by his wives. He worships Yahweh at the temple, and then he'll worship the other gods with his other wives at the high places. And so now you, have, you could see there's cracks already in it. And so from there, um, Sol- so Solomon does that, and eventually God says to Solomon, I'm tearing the kingdom away from your son. For David's sake, I'm not going to tear it away from you. But from your son, I'm going to tear the kingdom in half. Ten tribes are going to go to one, and you'll keep two. Your son will keep two. And so from there... Israel splits into northern kingdom and southern kingdom. And for the next 300 years, they're declining. And then Israel is exiled from the land because they break the law covenant with Moses. The covenant relationship. They basically violate it. God calls it, it's similar to um, adultery in the sense that, you know, God's saying like, I married you and you cheated on me. So they broke the covenant. And then on the, the southern kingdom, it just took a little bit longer, 150 years longer. But they also don't learn their lesson from their northern kingdom brothers and sisters. And they end up um, violating the covenant and breaking the law covenant as well. And so they're kicked out of the land to Babylon. You guys know the story of Daniel in the lion's den and all that. Ezekiel is, is taken to Babylon. That's all because the kingdom failed. 
The kingdom was supposed to keep God's covenant and shine as a holy people so all the nations are blessed. Did they do that? No, they didn't do that. They worshipped idols. The kings were proud and arrogant. And, and, and they, they made treaties with other countries. They were syncretistic. They did not keep the law. And so God got fed up with them and he kicked them out of land. But as he's kicking them out of land, as the kingdom is failing and declining, God is making promises. And he's saying, don't worry, I'm going to redeem you. Just like I redeemed you out of Egypt, I'm going to do a new Exodus redemption. We talked about that a little bit last week, right? The second Exodus. He says, even though you guys are going into exile, I'm going to redeem you. I am going to give you a new covenant. I'm going to give you a new King David. And I'm going to put you in a new land. And there will be a new creation over the whole earth. And all the nations will be blessed. So even as they're declining and now they're in exile, God promises a land, a people, and a what? A blessing. And a king, King David, to order it all. A new King David. So they started in Egypt, right, at the bottom. They got all the way to Jerusalem with David and Solomon. And where did they end up in the exile? Back at the, back at the bottom again, right? By the end of episode 2, they are just like, just like they were slaves in Egypt. Now they're oppressed in Babylon. And you're back where you started. You're not in your land and you got nothing. The kingdom failed and declined. Okay, so that is... So the question, the big question of episode 2 is... Will, would the kingdom keep their covenant and mediate universal blessing to the nations? Would they do it, yes or no? Did they do it, yes or no? No, no they didn't. They didn't. And so they failed. That's episode two. Now let's go to episode three. Okay. So the kingdom is established. The kingdom fails. Episode three is from the exile to who? To Jesus. Okay. And I, I titled this episode, The Kingdom Comes. The kingdom comes. Here's the question. You're in Babylon. You got all these promises that you're going to have a new land, a new people, a new blessing to the a universal blessing, and a new King David, and a new temple. You're going to have all of it renewed. And it's going to be, even be better than the first time. So you have all these promises, and you're sitting in Babylon. So from the exile to Jesus, you know what happens? God busts them out of Babylon. He start, they start to return to the land with Ezra teaching them the law covenant again. With Nehemiah rebuilding the? Temple. Not the temple. That's a good guess. The wall of Jerusalem. And then you have Zerubbabel rebuilding the, the temple. Right? And so you have, now they're back in the land. This is before Jesus. This is like 70, 80, 100, 150 years after the exile. They're, they're back in the land. They got the wall back up in Jerusalem. They got a new temple. And Zerubbabel is a, is a descendant of David who's leading them. And they're being taught the law covenant again. So now do they become the universal blessing? No, they don't. They don't keep the law, covenant. Their temple was supposed to be this glorious temple that's way better than Solomon's, and it's a dinky, shoddy-looking temple. And the older people who remember that temple when they were kids, they, were, they literally cry weeping at how bad it looks. The younger people who never seen the temple were like, praise God, we got a temple, this is awesome. And all the older folks who were young kids when they were exiled, they're weeping and just saying, this is horrible. And so, where's this great temple? Well, you got a shoddy temple. Where's the new David? Well, he's rubble and he's not really ruling anything. Where's the new, aren't we now keeping the new covenant? Don't we have the law covenant back that Ezra taught us? They're not really keeping the law covenant that well. And the new covenant promises them new hearts. Well, aren't we back in the land? Well, you're, te you're technically back in the land, but you're not even ruling the land because you're under the empire of the Medo-Persians and then Greece and then Rome. So you're, you're in your land, but you don't really own the land. You're conquered by another people. 
So by the end of the Old Testament, then, then after that, to top it all off, God goes silent for 400 years. So you come back to the land, you get all these things, and then God goes quiet. And you're like, God, hello, prophet, something. Do you have any word for us, God? You have all these great promises, and here we are in our land, and it's all messed up. And that's the end of the Old Testament. So it's the exile. They're back from the exile, and yet it doesn't seem like all the promises. It kind of fizzles out until we get to who? Jesus. And see, this is the whole point of the Old Testament. Jesus came at the perfect time. You're like, why didn't Jesus come right after Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve, have the fr- Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Eve has a kid. Jesus, boom, you're saved and you're rubble back, right? Everything's good. Like, why you got to go through this whole story? Because God is trying to show us through these patterns that he has a huge plan of a people, a land where he's going to live with you, a blessing to all the nations, and a king who's going to rule. Amen. With the story of this Old Testament of the kingdom established and the kingdom declining, and then the kingdom sort of sputtering with all these promises, but never realizing them. Okay, so you got kingdom established, kingdom decline, kingdom sputtering, seeming like nothing's going to happen. And then all of a sudden, who steps on the scene? Jesus, the Messiah. And so when Matthew is getting to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's so excited. He's like, dude, this is the fulfillment of all the hopes that we've been waiting for ever since Abraham, ever since David. Now it's coming in Jesus. All right, so that's the story of the Old Testament. Uh, maybe get the CD and listen to that 15 minutes every so often just to, just to get the story of the Old Testament. Hopefully you could master that story better than your favorite movies. Now, let's apply it, okay? Let's, let's, let's do three applications here on your notes. Um, so application number one. So I have an application from Abraham, David, and exile. Application number one. Pursue the blessing of Abraham. This is what God's telling you now. So what do I do with this story? God is telling you here today, you need to pursue the blessing of Abraham. You need to pursue the blessing of Abraham. What is the blessing of Abraham? Look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I'm just going to start reading, and the reason why is is for the sake of time, because we have a few verses to go to. But if you could get there, uh, turn there. If you can't, don't worry, just listen. Genesis 12, verse 1 says this. The Lord said to Abraham, go out from your land, your relatives... And your father's house to the land I will show you. To the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So there it is. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation with great offspring. And I will make you a universal blessing to all the peoples of the earth. That's the promise. And why do you need to pursue the blessing? Because where's the whole world before they get the blessing of God? They're under the what? Curse. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, there's a five-fold blessing. Blessing is mentioned five times. You know how much you know how many times curse is mentioned in Genesis 1 through 12, 3? Five times. There's a five-fold cursing, and Abraham is given a promise of a five-fold blessing. This is the fulfillment, the reversal of the curse. If you don't pursue, if you, I'm talking to you here, sitting here, if you do not receive the blessing of Abraham, you are cursed and you're going to hell. This is not a small thing. This is not just Bible story and let's get the story of the Old Testament down. If you do not receive the blessing of Abraham, if your children don't receive the blessing of Abraham, if your friends and neighbors don't receive the blessing of Abraham, then you are going to hell for your sins. 
You're cursed apart from the blessing of God. So God promises this blessing through Abraham. And then in Genesis 22, verse 18, just a few pages over, it's through this great nation. But then Abraham gets, or God gets a little bit more specific with Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 18. He says, All the nations of the earth will be blessed by who? By your offspring, because you have obeyed my command. So there it is. How are, how are, how are we going to get the blessing? By what? By the offspring, by the great nation, you might think, or by the offspring. Through the offspring, we will get the blessing. So the question is, who's the offspring? Well, what does Matthew say? Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If he's the son of Abraham, he is the offspring of Abraham. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. And that's what Galatians 3.16 says. Galatians 3.16 says this. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his offspring or to his seed. He does not say to his seeds or to his offsprings as referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Messiah is what what Paul says in Galatians 3.16. So who's the offspring of Abraham through whom we get the blessing? Through who? Jesus, the son of Abraham. So go back to Matthew chapter 1. I want you to see here that sinners who are cursed get the blessing of Abraham. Matthew chapter 1. Let's do a little bit of work here in the genealogy. In the genealogy in verses 2, I'm sorry, verse 3, 4, 5, and 6, you have a few women named. You guys see the four women named in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6? Shout out the names of the women. Tamar. What else? Rahab, Ruth, and the other one's not named, but referred to as in verse 6. Who's that? Bathsheba, but there she's called Uriah's wife, right? Okay, so what do we learn about these four women? We learn a few things from these four women. First of all, we learn that these four women are considered non-Israelites, ethnically, Right? Tamar is a Canaanite. Rahab is, a, is from Jericho, so she's a Canaanite. Ruth is a Moabite, and they were a curse to the 10th generation. And Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, she might have been an Israelite, but she was married to Uriah, who was a Hittite. And that becomes the emphasis identifying her ethnic people group, in a sense, or part of her ethnicity, is that she's associated with the Hittites. So you have four women who, through whom the blessing of God comes to the world even though they're not part of ethnic Israel. So what does that tell us? That even if you're not part of ethnic Israel, even if, you're not, if your ancestry doesn't go to the Israelites, you can still be part of the blessing. Amen. You can still have the blessing. The blessing is not just for one nation, but through the one offspring to the many nations. So we can praise God for that. Not only that, what else do we know about these four women? They're all associated with... Sexual impropriety, right? Tamar was neglected and actually shafted by her father-in-law when her husband died. He's supposed to provide another of his sons to provide one offspring for her to carry on the line. He doesn't do it, so she tricks him into, she she dresses up like a prostitute and tricks him into an incestuous relationship, father-in-law with daughter-in-law. And then through that, she gets pregnant with, here it is in verse 3, Perez and Zerah. So God uses that incestuous relationship to continue the seed line to the Messiah. Then not only that, you have Rahab. And Rahab is a what? Prostitute. Prostitute. 
Okay, sexual morality. Then you have um, Ruth. Now Ruth, praise God, Ruth, Ruth, Ruth was not, she did not do anything um, inappropriate. But she was easily associated with impropriety in, in because when she went to Boaz's, you could read the book of Ruth for the full story, but she went to Boaz's threshing floor in the middle of the night and lay down at his feet. Now nothing went on, but that was, that was you know, that could be largely seen as improper and immoral. Okay, so there's that. And then you have the last one who's what? Uriah's wife. Who's that? Bathsheba. And her immorality was, you know, she could do hashtag me too in a sense, right? Because, um, because David was a king and he abuses power. And yet still, um, still um, it's still sexual immorality, right? And impropriety there as well. So what do we learn from this? That the blessing comes to sinners as well, right? Amen. The blessing is not for the righteous, the blessing is for sinners. And not only that, we also learn from this, if God could use this, this line with these types of sins in it, Mary is not married yet, right? When she has Jesus. She's betrothed, but she's not married. And we're going to read next week when we go to Matthew 1, 18 and 25. Joseph is about to divorce her quietly because she's looked at as inappropriate, right? She's looked at as immoral. And so what is Matthew telling us? He's telling the Jews here in, from the book of Matthew, the, the early audience, don't count Jesus out because it looks like he has an improper birth. Because even in the line going all the way back, if you're going to count Jesus, if you're a Jew and you're going to count Jesus out because of his birth with Mary and she wasn't married, then you've got to count David out because David comes from Rahab and Tamar. So if you as a Jew respect King David as king, then guess what you need to do with Jesus? You can't count him out just because he was born of Mary. Does that make sense? Yes. So Matthew is pointing that out so that you would see that you can't write Jesus off as the Messiah Amen. and as the, the one through whom you get the blessing of Abraham. Okay, so Jesus is the son. The point here, uh, in point one here, is Jesus is the son of Abraham who brings the blessing to all ethnic people groups. So what's the application for you, brothers and sisters? Receive the blessing. Go to Jesus because we're sinners and we're cursed and we need the blessing that comes only through Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you need to go to Jesus for your blessing. To, to remove the curse in your life. And the effects of the curse in your life. There is no other hope for you than Jesus Christ. So you need to pursue the blessing by going to Jesus. If you're a Christian now, let me talk to you brothers and sisters. Christians. Not only do you need to receive the blessing. Guess what? <coughs> because you're part of God's people now you need to channel that blessing to other people. Do you have neighbors who aren't Christian? Do you have coworkers who need the blessing of God? Do you have family members, even in your own household, who are under the curse of God's wrath? Do you know anyone who needs the blessing of God? If you do, the application here is, you need to channel that blessing to them by telling them about the Son of Abraham, Amen. Jesus Christ. Okay? And then as a church family, what does this mean for us as a church family? The church is supposed to be a community of blessing where we gospelize each other and we tell each other about the blessing we have and we keep applying the gospel to each other's lives so we keep rolling back the effects of the curse on our church family. Is any of our members here affected by the curse still in their lives? Every member of Bethany Baptist Church has the effects of curse still reeling in their lives. And so what do we need every day? The grace of God, the blessing of God applied to us where the Lord blesses you and keeps you and makes his face shine on you and is gracious to you and looks on you with favor and gives you 
Peace. Does any of our church family need peace? Who doesn't need peace in our church family, right? So let's, let's be a gospelizing community where we apply the gospel to each other's lives. Okay, so let's pursue the blessing. Point number two. Pursue the blessing of Abraham. Secondly, gladly submit to the kingship of Jesus. Or the kingship of David, we could say. Gladly submit to the kingship of David. What do we mean, gladly submit to the kingship of David? Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Or just listen. 2 Samuel 7 is the promise to David. You know what God promised to David? There are two of the great promises here. Promised to Abraham and then promised to David. <coughs> 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 says this. This is God speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, David, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's speaking about Solomon. I will be his father and he will be my son. When your son, Solomon, when he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Now listen to verse 16, even if you're not there. Just 2 Samuel 7, 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me. How long? Forever. Forever. And your throne will be established how long? Forever. Forever. Okay, so here, David's kingdom and his throne will be established forever. He will always have a descendant on his throne, and that reign will never end. Who is that speaking of? Well, go to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9. You can read 1 through 7. I'm just going to read 6 and 7. But you need to read it from verse 1 if you want to get a fuller sense of this Old Testament hope. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. I'm only reading 6 and 7. Okay, listen to this. You, you're so familiar with this verse. As I start reading it, you almost don't even need to turn there. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says this. For unto us a child is born, and unto us, I'm using the King James here. See, that's King James in my blood right there. Unto us a son is given, and I'm going back to CSB here, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. You guys all heard that, right? That's a Christmas verse. But listen to verse 7 now in light of King David and the Old Testament story. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign where? Where will he reign? On the throne of? David. And over his kingdom, to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of Yahweh, the Lord of armies, will accomplish this. So this child who's going to be born, this son who's going to be given, is going to reign on whose throne? David's throne. And how long? Forever. So who's that? Well, when you get to Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the one who will reign over all of God's people and fulfill this promise to David. And so with this, we worship Jesus as the, as the king. We submit to Jesus as the king. So when you get to Matthew chapter 1, and you hear Son of David, you start reading through the Gospel of Matthew. I'm not going to do it now for the sake of time. But if you just do a search in your Bible app, Son of David, 
And you just look at all the verses of Matthew. You have blind Bartimaeus who say, Son of David, Son of David, heal me from my eyes. You know, heal me. And then, and then you have the centurion who, um, or not the centurion. You have, um, so you have the two blind men who are healed. Um, the, the woman, the Seraphonician woman, who wants the crumbs from, God's, from the table when her, when her child is demon-possessed. She calls him Son of David. Even the Gentiles recognize him as the Son of David. And then when he's on the donkey, the triumphal entry, and he's going and there's palm branches on the floor. What are they all shouting? Hosanna, which means save us. And what do they call him? Son of David. They're saying to Jesus on the donkey, Hosanna, save us, God. Save us, son of David. Save us, Messiah. You're the king. That's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders, when they heard them saying Hosanna, son of David, they were angry at Jesus. And they're telling Jesus, stop them. Don't you hear what they're saying about you? And Jesus says, if I stop them, even the stones will cry out. Because I am the son of David. I am the king. I am the son given. I am the child born. I am the one who's going to, where the government's going to be on my shoulders. I am the one who's going to rule on the throne of David, the king forever. So that even when Jesus crucified on the cross, it says above him, the king of the Jews. And in Revelation 22, verse 16, Jesus says at the very end of the Bible, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest of these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Jesus calls himself the root, he's before David, and he's the offspring, he's after David. He's the root and the offspring of David. So Jesus is the son of David, the king of God's people, and the king of literally the universe. So what should we do? If he's the king, what do, we, what do people do to kings? We bow down to kings. We pay homage to kings. We pledge ultimate allegiance, not to a nation on earth. We pledge ultimate allegiance to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the king of heaven. We give your, you, you give your life for your king. And so, if you're going to recognize the kingship of Jesus in, as a descendant of David, as the son of David, then you need to put him above your friends. You need to put Jesus, the king, above your family. You need to put him above your job and your career. You need to put him above your fame, your power, your dreams, and even your own personal health. Amen. Jesus does call some people to risk their personal health, in submitting to him, right? You got Christians who die to serve non-Christians, even in sickness, right? They'll go to the hospitals. That's what happened in the early centuries. Saying, well, these Christians are crazy. The plague is sweeping the land and the Christians are going into the cities trying to help these people. And they're dying helping these people. Why? Because they live for the king. And they have the hope of the king. And they submit their lives to the king. Even their health is not superior to the king. If you put anything above your king then that thing you put above your king becomes your king, right? And so Jesus must be supreme in your life. And so that's why it says in Matthew 28, verse 20, teach the disciples to obey everything I commanded because I'm the king. Teach them to obey everything I commanded. So brothers and sisters, let us gladly submit to the king. I mean, isn't he the best king? Who would you rather have rule over your life if not Jesus? What, What king is better and more gracious and more life-giving and freeing than Jesus. There is none. And so, let us submit to him, and then let's teach others to obey what he commands with grace and love. Let's teach others. You know what the church is supposed to show the world? That submitting to Jesus' commands is not a burden, but a joy. Because they love him as their king. You're not impressive. We don't impress the world, not that we're trying to impress them in a sense, but we, we don't make an impression about the glory of Christ when we when we um, obey God with a grudging, complaining heart. Oh, i got to obey this dumb command. 
from the Bible. Or we don't want to say dumb command because that sounds, that sounds irreverent. But we think that and we feel it even if we don't say it, right? And so we need to gladly submit. God, thank you for the commands that I don't like. Because you're reminding me that you're a better king than me. Amen. And your rule and your wisdom is, is wiser than mine. So thank you for the commands that I don't like right now. And those change, by the way, when our heart changes and it's idolatry. Okay, so the third one is not going to be long at all, but how does, so if we're going to receive the blessing of Abraham, if we're going to submit to the kingship of David, how does, how do we get the blessing though? How, how does this king give us the blessing? Okay, so the blessing comes through Jesus. He's the king who rules, but how do we get this? How does the king actually bring the blessing to cursed people? What caused the curse? What causes the curse in our lives? Sin. So how is the king going to bring blessing to sinners? In other words, if he's going to take the curse away from us, if he's going to reverse the curse and give us blessing, he has to deal with our sin. So Matthew one twenty one says, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Well, how does he save his people from sins? So the third point here is return from the exile with Israel or be redeemed from the exile. How does... Jesus redeem us from the exile. How, the exile, the redemption from the exile, is the second Exodus redemption. In the first Exodus redemption, how did they get out of Egypt? What was the tenth plague? What did they need to do to the lamb? Kill it and what? Put the blood where? Over the, Over the doorpost. The only way you're going to get the first redemption is by a Passover lamb. And so, how, is, how are we going to be redeemed and get the blessing of God? Well, there needs to be another Passover lamb. So on Passover night, go to Matthew 26, last verse. On, on Passover night, or right around the Passover festival, there's a little bit of debate about which night is which, but Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28. As they were eating the Passover, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the what? Of the covenant. Here, it's new covenant in Luke, but here, yeah, blood of the covenant, but it is the new covenant. For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the what? Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. The only way you get the redemption from exile, being estranged from God, kicked out of God's place. The only way you get the redemption from exile, the only way you get your sins taken care of is by a new covenant. Amen. And the new covenant comes in the blood of Jesus. So how do you get redemption at the, at the end of the day? If you're going to get the blessing of Abraham and submit to the kingship of David, how do you get the blessing to actually flow to you in redemption from, from exile? By trusting in the blood of Jesus. Amen. Jesus died for your sins. He took the curse on himself. He bore the wrath of God so that as you trust in his body and blood, blood spilled for you, body broken for you, trust in his death and his resurrection, you have redemption from the exile. So brothers and sisters, let us worship and trust in Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead. If you're not a Christian, this is the best news in the world that all your sins can be forgiven, that God will enter into a covenant relationship with you, that he will redeem you out of your exile from God because of your sin, that he will rule over you with the most gracious ruling, and he will bless you 
with the blessing of Abraham, even though you're cursed. And he'll make you part of his great nation, his holy nation, his people, the church. He will do all of that for you, even though you deserve hell, because Christ died for you and rose for you. If, if you will turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. And so Jesus is telling you this morning where you sit, turn from your sins and trust in me. So brothers and sisters, I close by just reiterating, just to summarize, you need to recognize Jesus as the son of Abraham, the son of David, the Messiah Redeemer. So you go to him for blessing by gladly submitting to his kingship and by trusting in his redeeming work on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take these words and like we prayed in the beginning, plant seeds in us that bear immediate fruit of worshiping Jesus, of loving Jesus, of treasuring Jesus, of tasting of his goodness this morning. And then, Father, we pray for long-term seeds to bear fruit where we keep reading the Old Testament and keep going deeper and deeper in understanding the history of the Bible story so that we appreciate even more who Jesus is. So Lord, as we do our Bible reading, as we think about this story, help us to master it, and even more importantly, help us to be mastered by the story. That it might change our lives, and through us, you channel the blessing to our neighbors and to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.